My name is Sue Carr, and in this episode, I hope to share some of the upcoming data types that are coming out of carbon capture and get people to start thinking about data early instead of at the end of the process. Welcome to Seismic Sound Off, exploring the depth and usefulness of geophysics for the scientific community and the public. I'm your host, Andrew Gary. In this insightful episode, Sue Carr and Jess Cosman discuss the complexities and possibilities of managing downhole geophysical data for carbon storage. To begin, Sue and Jess highlight the data types associated with carbon storage and the first step in managing this data. They discuss the challenges in managing well data and clarify common misunderstandings about managing data for carbon storage. This conversation provides an excellent blueprint for the primary components of any data system focused on carbon storage projects, the key challenges and opportunities, and guidance on getting started with your carbon storage project. This episode is sponsored by Catalyst Data Management. Catalyst Data Management provides the only integrated end-to-end subsurface data management solution for the oil and gas industry. Over 240 employees operate in North America, Europe, Asia Pacific, and South America, dedicated to enabling digital transformation and optimizing the value of geotechnical information for exploration, production, and M&A activity. Learn more at CatalystDM.com. To discover the complete archive of over 200 episodes for Seismic Sound Off and read the biographies for Sue Carr and Jess Cosman, visit scg.org slash podcast or check out the show notes where you're listening now. And now, my conversation with Sue Carr and Jess Cosman. So Jess, we'll start with you here. What are the types of data that are associated with sustainable carbon storage? So the most common data that most of us will start to encounter when we hear about low carbon projects and specifically carbon storage will be downhole geophysics data. So this is data that's continuously recorded at the wellbore to usually during the injection phase to actually map the progress of a CO2 plume in this in the subsurface. And that can generate large volumes of data. Yeah. So so Sue, speaking of that, you know, when you hear geophysical data, the, these these data sets are huge. They're very large. What what is the first step in starting to manage the geophysical data that happens for carbon storage? That's a good question because a lot of the a lot of the data is tied to the same kind of entities we're used to in oil and gas. For example, well bores, um, seismic data we use that kind of thing. Really, uh, you're going to have to have a strategy on how are you going to deal with these very large volumes of data. Sticking them on a USB and shoving them in a back room is probably not a good solution. I think right now we don't we don't understand how are we going to use the data yet. And as that sort of progresses and we get better at using the data, we need to be able to have our fingertips on it so that we can we can see what's there and what we can interpret from it. What is it? What is the common first step that people have when they when they think about? Is there something that they are? that people are are pretty good at doing initially, but then they kind of miss out on like this next step that they should be doing on the data side? I think a lot of operators kind of start from a, what are the regulators telling us we have to collect in order to either obtain the lease for, for carbon storage or to operate a project? 
And I think maybe the step that gets missed is looking back and saying, okay, what data types do we really need to successfully evaluate this? Not just what are we going to have to submit, but what makes our decision-making process better? What supports our, you know, our, our business case? And we'll stay with you, Jess, here. What do, what do you see as a few of the main challenges in managing well data in particular? Biggest challenge that most operators have is when somebody in the drilling department comes down the hall and says, we're going to be collecting fiber optic data in seven monitoring wells on a CO2 project, and it's going to generate 10 terabytes of data per well per day for the next 20 years. And somebody in data management says, gulp. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's a little scary there. And, and I want to hear from both of you on this, and, and we'll start with Sue. What are some common misunderstandings about managing data for, for carbon storage in particular that you most frequently hear? That's a good question. So the thing to remember about carbon capture and carbon storage, uh, we're looking at a reverse workflow cycle time, if you will. So we're starting with, we've got a container under the ground and we want to put information into it. We typically, in oil and gas, we want to take stuff out of the reservoir, and we have all kinds of tools to deal with how we measure that, what we do with that, those sorts of things. But in the case of carbon capture, well, as an industry, it's fairly new to us, although we've been pushing things under the ground for a long time, but not at this kind of scale and not at this kind of involving other industries and their carbon emissions as well. So it's a little bit different thinking. Yeah, and I would add to that, I would say that um, one of the other misconceptions is that you have to store and manage all of that data that's coming off in raw form. If you think about what you're doing, at least at the monitoring stage, you're looking for changes created in the subsurface by your injection of that CO2. So really, you're interested in the deltas. You don't have to record and store every bit of raw data unless the regulator is telling you you have to, but most of them are looking at some sort of staged or event-triggered um, recording. So, yeah, what first looks like a very daunting challenge in data management and storage can be knocked down by applying some best practices around edge computing, calculations prior to shipping the data from the well site, and basically looking at what is you're looking for what has changed in the in the subsurface. And that's a processing technique that we're very familiar from 4D processing. Are the challenges that that you face on a data management side for carbon storage or for extracting oil from the ground, are those pretty similar challenges or those unique propositions you have to address on the, the management side of data? So just the sheer volume, I think, makes it kind of a step change for us. The, the good news is the data types that we're dealing with, SegWi, ProtML, WitsML, uh, the data formats, and the fact that we're measuring we're measuring physical properties of a reservoir in the subsurface. So we're not doing anything really new there. We're applying some new techniques. We're generating more volumes. But the basics of what we do, you can look at, for instance, a full measuring, monitoring, and, and verification suite of tools for a CO2 injection project. You can look at it the same way you would look at the processing sequence for a seismic survey at the exploration stage. A lot of the steps in the processing will be very familiar to both the end users of the data and the and the data management staff. Thanks for explaining that. Sue, l- let's go to the acronym FAIR, F-A-I-R. Could you explain that acronym for us? FAIR stands for Findable, Accessible, Interoperable, and Reusable. 
And it's the guiding principles that we use to make public data more transparent. And Jess can add a whole bunch more on that, I'm sure. Yeah, it's basically best practices around providing accessibility and what's sometimes referred to as data democratization. So if you want different parts of your organization, different disciplines, different functions to be able to work with data that's being shared across the life cycle of a project, it has to have those attributes which are defined by those FAIR principles. And there are some measurable, quantifiable metrics that you can use to discover if your data meets those criteria. The criteria were first developed, as Sue said, for, for public domain data and um, research, uh, academic type studies, but it's been very fruitfully applied in the industry as well. And it's a good guideline and best practice for understanding if you know, sometimes as data managers, we, we kind of tend to internalize how we think about the data. And we always have to remember that data is invaluable until it's being made findable and accessible, right, to the people that need to use it to support business decisions. Is FAIR connected to OSDU or are those kind of two separate groups? No, those principles, if you think about FAIR principles, you can apply those to any kind of data management project. It's a good way to test if if the technology you're deploying is really improving the the ability of end users to apply that data to a business decision, right? So we, we see it applied to, you know, the transcription or the digital transformation of what is now legacy hard copy data. You're increasing the that ability of users to interoperate and reuse the data. Sue, what key components will any data system need to support these carbon storage projects? Not dissimilar to what we see in oil and gas. You need you need somewhere to keep the data that's safe and has all the security and disaster recovery and all of those IT things around it. But you also need metadata stored that tells you where did that data come from, what's the lineage, um, how is it collected. So all of those parameters about what the data is really made up of, you'll need to have some kind of combination of both of those. So it's not just a hard drive on a shelf or a bunch of data on a server. You have to understand what is that data? Where did it come from? And one of the one of the ways that that kind of manifests itself is, um, so just yesterday here in the Houston office, we were looking at some some monitoring data coming in and seeing how that was going to fit in kind of our standard data ingestion and indexing process. And um, yeah, that's one of the first things you, you need to do is understand how you're going to apply your current best practices to these new types of data as they come in. And, and we're finding that a lot of the processes we have in place are pretty easy to, to kind of adopt and adapt to those new data types. You know, carbon storage, I would say on on a level of scaling to the scale that some people are, are looking towards is, is kind of, we're not there yet. There's a long way to go. So I could imagine some sort of non-geophysical, non-oil and gas companies getting in that space. Would there be a big, you know, they may have never heard of Segway data, you know, how would they start getting familiarized with the, with the tools you're talking about in the geophysical space to understand what they need to do to be able to use this data long-term and, and use it well? You mentioned OSDU earlier. That forum actually is is kind of spreading its wings and looking at uh, low-carbon project data. Um, so there's a footprint of data schemas and data formats within OSDU that is specifically looking at just what you described. If a, if a company that is not familiar with the subsurface part of this and wants to work the surface facilities needs to understand how data 
about what's happening in the ground is being delivered to them. There are OSDU working groups that include those kind of those kind of companies so that we can find the best ways to share that data to make those large industrial scale facilities work. And and you're exactly right. It's early, it's early days. I wouldn't say that that's a mature area of the OSDU data schema development yet, but it's being pressed pretty hard because, as you say, there aren't really industrial, there's only two or three industrial scale carbon injection projects right now on the planet. And they've got some teething problems in terms of the uh, the volumes of data. So we're gonna we're going to continue to be involved in that. And a forum like the OSDU forum is an ideal place to to kind of hash out those those best practices. The other thing that we're seeing locally is sort of an organic ground swelling of let's figure this stuff out together. There's no competitive advantage to doing it all on our own and figuring it out on our own. Let's work on it as an industry. And so we've got a group that's been stood up in Canada called CHASM that is basically for us to share information. And it's a it's an interesting group because you get a bunch of people who are not used to talking to each other. There's the guys from the from some of the Shell Quest engineers and those kind of things, working with data managers and geoscientists and everybody's kind of working on it together because we're all learning what we need to know. So I like it. I like to see that. And there's a similar there's a similar group operating in um, Australia where the government regulatory agencies have deliberately brought in um, what they call external reference groups of, of industry players, operators, data management, service companies, engineering firms, and, and trying to understand because they're still constructing those data submission standards for the government at both a federal commonwealth level and a state level. And they see the advantage of those being standardized before we get to the industrial scale deployment of the, of the technology. Yeah, Sue, so when you said chasm, my, my I almost kind of heard chasm in my head. And I feel like that's a good descriptor for what you're trying to do, bridging the, these uh, <laughs> people that maybe don't talk together. Crossing the chasm. Yeah. Crossing the chasm, yeah. Just for the explore and evaluate component of carbon storage, I, I like this kind of idea of the must-haves, the should-haves, and the nice-to-haves. Could you highlight a, a few of those in that explore and evaluate component? Yeah, the, the initial discussions that we have with a lot of operators is that you need to think differently, right? So if you're, if you're evaluating a reservoir for oil and gas production, you're interested in what is filling the pore space, right? Is it oil, gas, or water? When you're exploring for a place to put CO2, you're interested in the pore space itself because you need room to put that CO2 in it. And it's all about the injectivity capability of that reservoir. So the must-haves are, you know, some of the same things that we like to measure for oil and gas. It's all about permeability, porosity, available porosity. But it's also about the mechanical ability of that reservoir to receive what is usually supercritical cooled CO2 in a liquid phase. And what we're finding, you know, the temptation is to think, well, if I'm injecting into a depleted oil and gas reservoir, right, I know what that reservoir looked like before I started producing the oil and gas. So I'm just reversing that process, right? I'm just putting something back in that was, that was already there. And what the rock mechanics and rock physics guys are finding is this is not the case at all, right? There's, there's this hysteresis property of, of rock mechanics that says once you release that 
geo pressure that's been there for four million years, the rocks don't go ever go back to the way they were. So there's a lot of knowledge that has to be obtained, and, and there's a lot of measurements. Specifically, rock mechanics is, is one of the subdisciplines of reservoir engineering that's getting a lot of attention to understand how is that reservoir going to behave when you start injecting a supercritical gas back into it. The interesting thing about that is in a depleted oil and gas reservoir, you at least have the production history of the well to give you some baseline parameters. In some of the onshore Australia projects where they are injecting into a deep saline reservoir below the oil and gas production because it's got you know, an order of magnitude more pore space available, but maybe there's only two or three wells, water wells that were drilled because when the oil and gas explorers went in there, they weren't looking for a deep saline reservoir. They didn't care. So they cased it all off. They never measured it. They never did any of the wireline logging across those segments. So we've got a lot more range of uncertainty on our understanding of the reservoir property. So at that evaluation stage, the reservoir mechanics is a is a really critical part. That's, that's a must-have. And then um, some of the nice-to-haves are, you know, Revaluating the seal, what's going to happen to that seal under the stress of re-injecting? What are the potential migration paths to the to the surface? Um, and that brings in some extra data types that maybe we're not used to thinking about in the oil and gas exploration side, like ground monitoring ground deformation with with satellite data or looking for direct evidence of gas through soil gas sampling at the surface. Is there an academic discipline or, you know, a company segment, professional segment that you would love to start entering the conversation around carbon storage? Yeah, I find my I find myself starting with uh, with the reservoir engineers, because in general, these operators have taken a group that was deep water exploration and they've basically put them in a room and said, you guys are now a carbon storage exploration group. Um, and the reservoir engineers are generally the ones leading that because they have the most knowledge about the subsurface. The drilling and completions guys, because of the for the for the monitoring side of it, are getting much more involved. I'm talking with a lot more drilling drilling and completion engineers than I ever did before because they're the ones trying to understand how are you going to get sensors down that well after we've completed it, right? And what is what is that downhole apparatus scheme going to look like, Sue? Just wanted to to touch one minute on the question you had before, Joss. One of the things in that these these really old wells that they used to drill back in the day that were deep exploration wells, where they weren't really going for oil and gas, they were just looking to see what was down there. Pay attention to some of that old paper data, because we used to collect a lot of things like lithium and helium and hydrogen and those kind of parameters that we don't collect today that may have some importance and some value as you as you progress through this journey. Yeah, it's a very fair no, that's a very good point. And uh and we've we've got some case studies here in Australia of where the best indication of available pore space for for injection of CO2 was literally a a handwritten note on the mud log of a well that was drilled in the nineteen thirties or forties that's sitting in a paper copy in a warehouse at a government state agency, right? Uh, so literally, we, we've gotten a lot of value out of reaching back, digitizing, doing OCR on those records, making them available for computerized search. 
Yeah, I spoke with a geophysicist yesterday who's trying to develop a new type of display for seismic data. And one of his points was, you don't have to redo any of this data. You're going to be able to see new things with this display. So it is kind of exciting to think about this old data, already recorded data that maybe you can you can glean a lot of information from. You know, Sue, you shared a, a presentation deck with me. And in that, there was in this monitoring component of carbon storage, there was a graphic for Malaysia. And my first response when I saw that was like, wow, this is a lot. Is that number of CO2 monitoring technologies common? That is a big number. And funny, because looking at that graph, when we first put that together, went to bed thinking, oh, that's not a lot of data, whatever. Woke up in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning and went, holy, that's <laughs> well, and we have X number of wells. So um, it's a magnitude that we're not used to. But like Jess had mentioned earlier, we don't necessarily need to, to store all that raw data because we're looking for the deltas. So you, you know, you capture the raw data once and then you measure deltas after that. So it's a lot less volume than, than what they're um, kind of predicting just because we don't have to store absolutely everything that came out of that. Having said that, we don't know what we're going to use it for completely. So as a data manager, I'm like, oh, we should just keep it. Put it in a safe space. Maybe we'll need it in 10 years. Yeah, and that that graphic is actually from Petronas, which is the, the national oil company and regulator for, for Malaysia. And those are the technologies that they include in their suite of what we expect you to at least consider in applying for a permit with the Malaysian government to inject CO2. Now, not all of them are going to be applicable to every project. That would vary with whether you're onshore or offshore, you know, drilling into a depleted field or a saline reservoir. There's a lot of factors there, but those are all the technologies that they're considering. And that came out of a consulting engagement that we had with the government to help them understand what should they put in their regulations in terms of what data they expect an operator to submit with either a license or operating reports once they're injecting. They're all feasible, and I would emphasize that graphic is almost a year and a half old, and there are new technologies coming on the market all the time. So it's a very active and, and agile space that we need to be in. Yeah, so we're just talking about Malaysia, Canada, Australia have come up. Is there a particular country you think is leading the way for carbon capture projects? Yeah, some of the countries that we're hearing a lot of, a lot of energy and a lot of um, work being done around, Really, the three companies that bubble to the top are Norway, Australia, and Canada. So proud to be part of that that group. <laughs> yeah, so we've got pretty good coverage in those countries. And that's a combination of available geology and government support for low-carbon projects, right? So you need that combination. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of activity in those three countries. They all have some kind of carbon market that a company can look at and and see the commercial viability of an industrial scale project. Whereas other countries may have plenty of pore space available, but if there's no certainty around how the government is going to regulate it, that really knocks back the, the ability. I'd throw into that mix Brazil as well. I'm headed down to Brazil in a couple of weeks and, and there's a lot of interest in onshore CO2 there just because of the sheer amount of gas with CO2 in it that's coming out of the offshore basin, right? So it's a, that, that's a driver as well. What challenges for managing data around carbon storage are you most looking forward to working on? 
That's a that's a good question. I think because of the volume, this is something that executives are going to have to pay attention to with with other potential oil and gas data. Sometimes that got uh, maybe minimized on the effort that it took to do that because as data managers, we're heroes. We do whatever it takes to get the job done. This kind of data, we can't hide behind. This is way too big. It's going to take up way too much space. I can't tuck it away somewhere and expect that nobody's going to see it. Yeah, It's nice to see the interest that executives are taking in data at the beginning of the projects instead of it being an afterthought. And I'd say for me, the most exciting part is actually getting out in the field and seeing this stuff being used. So there's a couple of pilot projects in Australia uh, being run by government consortiums with the input of, of the operators where, you know, they're drilling pilot wells and doing injection. And that data is all because it's a government sponsored consortium. That data is all available to the public. So we've run some field trips out there. We've actually gone and looked at them monitoring wells and watched them run fiber optics down, uh, you know, a previously completed well. It's pretty exciting to see some of the technology that's being applied to set up the possibility of this continuous, real-time geophysical monitoring. And we're, we're having to plan that for a potential decadal project life. So we're, we're designing geophysical acquisition equipment to go down a hole with a planned life of 20 years in, a, in an injection well, right? 20 years of continuous monitoring with seismic data at 10 terabytes a day. That's exciting, right? <laughs> it's hard to wrap your mind around uh, that that's even possible, really, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, Jess, we'll, we'll ask you this first and, and then go to Sue. What would be your punchline as this conversation is closing? My punchline is it's a lot of data, but don't be scared. It's <laughs> we've got ways to, to manage it. We're, we're developing those best practices. So that first time that somebody brings fiber optic data down the hall to you and you see how much it is, you know, quell that panic. We've got it right. <laughs> we've been thinking about this probably longer than you have. So something I was saying to Jess yesterday is I feel like we're being given a second opportunity with all the learnings that we've had of the past 30 or 40 years, we're given an opportunity to figure something out. Let's do it right the first time. Is there anything I should have asked that I did not? Yeah, I think maybe some of the more exotic technologies uh, that are starting to, to come out, um, we're hearing, and it's, and it's worth listening to, right? There's a lot of research going into things like uh, muon tomo tomography for determining pore space in the subsurface. We're picking up a lot of um, technologies in terms of fiber optic sensing from the mining industry, which has been doing micro-seismic monitoring in, uh, in the subsurface for years more than, than before oil and gas started doing hydraulic fracturing. So yeah, I think that bringing things in from other industries is always something that the oil and gas industry has been really poor at. And again, I think to, to Sue's punchline, right, this is our opportunity to get it right. And if we're not listening to technological advances from other other industries, other data-intensive, capital-intensive, and highly regulated industries that are models for what we're doing, especially around the digital data, then we're, we're missing a trick. You've reached the end of Seismic Sound Off. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to be the first to know about the next episode, please follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. 
two of my favorites are Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you have episode ideas, feedback for the show, or want to sponsor a future episode, visit seg.org podcast and find the box titled Contact Seismic Sound Off. Zach Bridges created original music for this show. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary at Treasurement. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Ali McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off. <laughs>